This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. When the heart yearns to know from whence it came and whither it may go, Hermes is there at the crossroads to guide the way. I'm reading from a truly remarkable book called Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. A few months ago, we had Stash DeRola on Dreamland. He's a practicing alchemist in his 80s and very private, as most of them are. He doesn't uh, do much in public, but I think it was the only interview he's done in perhaps 20 years. And it was a very popular show. People are very interested in alchemy. So I've had my eye on other alchemical texts and alchemists who know what they're doing. That's how I find, found Morlina Seven Bremner. Seven is what she calls herself. She's with us today, uh, and she's going to be talking about alchemy. She's an oil painter, a writer, a teacher. She spent more than 20 years exploring esoterica and spiritual traditions, uh, hermeticism, alchemy, and many other traditions. She started in the Pacific Northwest. She now lives in the New Mexico desert, and obviously a beautiful situation, you can see. And she has written one of the best books about self-initiation into alchemy that I've ever read. Stash has been at this for twice as long as you've been alive, seven. And yet, this is an immensely accomplished text. Remarkable. Thank you for it. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction. I really appreciate it. And it's just great to be here. Well, good. Well, we have a lot of questions, as you may imagine. <laughs> Uh, I, I go to my little notes here, <laughs> pages of them. Let's start at the beginning uh, with the word alchemy. Where does the word alchemy come from? Well, alchemy, it's an Arabic word. So if you break it down, it means alchemia, which refers to um, the black land of Egypt, Kamiya or Kemet being um, the ancient name for Egypt. And that refers to the the rich soils along the banks of the Nile, which were black in color. So alchemy is really rooted in ancient Egypt and then developed over the centuries, um, especially through the Arabic traditions. And that's where that name comes from. So the Arabs preserved alchemy. And now why would they be motivated to do that? Were they trying to turn base metal into gold? Well, I believe that for them, it was both a, a physical and a spiritual process. So these processes of transmutation um, were really a way of coming to gnosis and understanding God. And that being reflected in the physical realm through these outer transmutations of metals um, was a way to demonstrate that relationship with the divine. The, in other words, the external work is not like chemistry, it's a way of reflecting your spiritual journey. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, let's um, uh, 
let me ask you this the the name hermes is in that sentence i read and hermes is a huge part of this tradition who is hermes well when we hear the name hermes we often just think of hermes from the greek tradition um the trickster the um um the trickster the yeah go ahead yeah sorry i'm just a little brain fog here um but Hermes Trismegistus is the patron deity of the Hermetic tradition. And Hermes Trismegistus means Hermes the thrice greatest. And this was a syncretic god combining the ancient Egyptian Thoth, the god of wisdom and alchemy and magic, astrology, and many other things um, with the Greek Hermes. And so this happened during the Hellenistic era. These two deities were combined together and worshiped together, um, particularly in the city of Hermopolis in Egypt. And Hermes Trismegistus is also a psychopomp. So he plays this role of connecting different worlds, the above and the below, the macrocosm and the microcosm, heaven and earth. And also within us, Hermes is this um, active force that helps us to connect disparate parts of ourself, the above and the below within us, the conscious and the unconscious. So Hermes has a lot of roles and he's particularly important in terms of the written word and the image and creativity and the imagination. At some point in your life, when you were quite young, obviously, you came to believe that this would be an important thing to, for you to do, to study alchemy. When did that start? How did that begin? Well. I'd been studying many other spiritual traditions and it took me a while to get to alchemy. Um, but I sort of came to it through my interest in natural healing and energy benison. And I was studying polarity therapy, which um, it's a hands-on modality that works with the life force of the body to open up blockages and release energy for its optimal flow. And it works with the poles of the body. So positive, neutral, and negative. And a lot of it is really based in hermetic principles. So I was being introduced to these ideas and introduced to the idea of correspondence between um, the celestial spheres and the body and how these relationships work, how the elements affect us internally. And all of this is also very alchemical, you know, working with the elements and balancing the elements, balancing the polarities. And so I was coming at it from a different angle and, um, at a certain point, someone introduced me to the work of Carl Jung, and that's when I was introduced to alchemy uh, through a psychological lens. And I just was very, very intrigued, and it seemed to trigger this kind of deep um, familiarity and a desire to understand in me at a very young age. I think I was in my early 20s. And um that sort of set me on the path of wanting to go deeper and wanting to go beyond uh, the work of Jung and to look at the manuscripts myself and kind of dig into those very obscure texts and um, see what I could learn from them. Because they are very obscure. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Can you name some of the texts that you think would be important to somebody uh, who's just starting out, but not texts that are completely impenetrable because there are some of those <laughs> well 
they're all pretty difficult in their own way. I mean, the language of alchemy is very, it's very poetic, which I find appealing. You know, when you're looking at the world symbolically, um, the way the alchemists do and have in the past, um, the language around it tends to come out in that way, in a very symbolic, metaphorical way, with many different meanings for different words and many um, different words for the same thing. So some of the texts that were really influential for me um, were Atalanta Fugians by Michael Meyer. And this is a wonderful work that has different short discourses on alchemical concepts with uh, imagery to match it and poetry and musical fugues. Um, it's really a beautiful book. And that came out, um, I believe, in the late Middle Ages, like around 1600 or so. Um, and then other works, like I'm really into Paracelsus and the writings of Paracelsus and his perspective on alchemy, uh, which is very in-depth, very spiritual, and also very practical. Um, and also the works of Zosimos of Panopolis, uh, who was an Egyptian, um, priest and very early alchemist. Um, so I think I don't know all the titles offhand, but the book of pictures is one of them. And um, yeah, let's see the writings of Morianus. Um, gosh, there's so many. The book uh, of pictures influences your own art. Of course. Yeah. Yes, it does. <laughs> and her art is awesome, by the way, folks, just awesome. There's no other way to describe it. Um. You know, you're incredibly mysterious to me. You understand that. Uh, what, uh, where do you come from? Uh, you, 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 uh, were you born in this? I don't think you're a native U.S., are you? Or Well, you I am. I was born abroad. I was born in Germany, but my parents are American. Um, I do have some German heritage. Um, but yeah, born in Germany, and my dad was Air Force, so we were all over the place. Um, yeah. Yeah, Nebraska, Hawaii, Quebec, Colorado. Um, so I had a lot of exposure to different cultures growing up, and I think that was pretty influential for me. Also, a lot of change and needing to adapt. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I uh, am, I know quite a few alchemists, and and. A number of them maintain, the really accomplished ones, that they have been alchemists before in uh, in past lives, in other lives, as indeed I believe I was. And I wonder what you have to say to that. Do do you respond to that idea at all? I do. I don't personally have any recollection of past lives, but I have certain periods of time that I feel very connected to, and. Um, you know, for instance, I recently went to Egypt and there was a deep sense of familiarity and coming home when I was there. And I've also felt very connected to um, Frankfurt, which is where I was born. And this time period right around um, the 16th and 17th centuries, where a lot of important alchemical works were being produced and published. And I was um, just going to say that was the capital of alchemy in the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. So I feel very connected to that time and place, and sometimes wonder if that's why I was born there. Um, so, I yeah. think it might be the case. 
I think you might have been an alchemist for a very long time, because frankly, there is no book this deep ever written, in my opinion, by a person who's under the age of 40 uh, in alchemy. Everyone who writes in alchemy writes only later in life, and they do that because it's so challenging to, it's not, you can you can practice alchemy much more easily than you can ex explain it and express it. Uh, and yet, I think that this is the clearest, you can become an alchemist from, from just from this book, which is remarkable. Well, that's quite the compliment. Thank you. Um, well, I'm, I'm being, I'm just being frank. I, you know, uh, and I, I uh, it's not really a compliment, simply a statement of fact. But let's let's now go go back to Hermes and Toth. Now, obviously, Hermes Trismegistus was not a person. I mean, there was no guy running around in a loincloth or something at some point, being saying, you know, I'm Hermes Trismegistus. Uh, why thrice greatest? Well, my understanding of thrice greatest, um, one, it goes back to different epithets that the Egyptian deity Thoth was given. Um, but I think it also relates to this idea of the three worlds and the three worlds being connected through Hermes. So we think of like the animal, vegetable and mineral kingdoms that are so important in alchemical work. Um, or the three principles of creation and Hermes sort of helping us to um, understand the relationships between them and um, merging them together. So we think of, um, again, those electromagnetic polarities, positive, neutral, and negative that are part of everything in existence, representing these three worlds. So and there's it, different ways to look at it. And also in the book, I talk about the three branches of hermeticism or the three like main teachings of Hermes, which um, alchemy, astrology, and magic. So we can look at the thrice greatest as sort of representing that as well. Pre-Dreamlanders, we're going to represent these commercials and uh, we'll be right back. We're talking to seven, Marlena Seven Bremner, and about alchemy and her book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, uh, which is also filled with some of the most dynamic esoteric art you will ever see. And uh, it, it, <clears throat> talking, we were talking about Hermes and trying to understand what these three principles were, just beginning to get, you know, it's so, it goes so deep because the proton uh, the uh, the neutron the proton and the uh, electron are also reflect the three principles of the the neutron being the passive force the proton the active or the electron the active force and the proton the balancing force this goes very deep it's also the secret of the sphinx the strength of the bull the uh uh, um, uh, courage of the lion and the intelligence of the man balancing the two and the thrice greatest Hermes hidden in that is also this journey toward balance and 
Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? How do we do this? If someone wants to take the alchemical journey, where do they start? Mm, that's a very good question. I feel like it's a combination of study and practice and experimentation in your own life and however that plays out for you. Um, but study is such an important part of it. And you'll read that in almost every alchemical text, you know, that we, we need to continue our study and keep learning and, you know, to approach our work, our, our alchemical work with um, a sense of devotion and a love of the divine. So I think that's an important part of it. And really, I mean, some people are going to be drawn to the laboratory alchemy. And for a long time, I was practicing creatively and experimenting with these processes through the creative process, but also thinking that I wanted to, at some point, have a laboratory of my own. But as time went on, I kind of realized that if that was what I really wanted, I would have done that already. And that it was quite satisfying for me to practice alchemy in this creative way and quite incredible and transformative for me. So I think there's many different ways to engage with alchemical work in the creative sense. Um, it's really a way of looking at the world and of understanding the relationship between within and without and contemplating these alchemical hermetic concepts um, continuously and watching how these different processes are playing out. And when we engage with them consciously, um, having some sort of physical domain in which they're playing out, we can see that reflection between the inner and outer. And that's really that magical place where we observe these processes taking place and begin to see the magic of creation and um, the power of the imagination too. So for me, it's painting and writing and poetry. These are, and music sometimes, these are the spheres where the alchemical process plays out for me. Um, for someone else, it might be in the laboratory. For someone else, it might be um, raising their child or running a business or, you know, whatever creative endeavor that brings us into connection between the outer and the inner. That connection is so important. Oh, but before we go on, do you teach alchemy? Um, not right now. I have taught creative alchemy classes in the past and the past several years, I've just been so busy with the books and um, getting into my creative process that I haven't been teaching, but I would like to get back to it this next year, hopefully. So I'm working on developing a course to introduce folks to these concepts, particularly through the creative lens. You have a Patreon channel as well, don't you? I do. I do. And I have a blog on there that goes back years. So lots of information um, about alchemy, about hermeticism, about my creative process as well on the blog, and then different rewards for folks that subscribe. Uh, and what? Um, how do we get to your Patreon channel? Uh, well, my name on there is Seven Art, so spelled out S-E-V-E-N-A-R-T. And yeah, you just go to patreon.com and look me up and then you can see the different tiers that are available. And there also will be a link folks in the, on the site, because I think you would answer questions, wouldn't you? If, uh, oh, certainly. Yeah, certainly. absolutely. So, yeah. because I think you can, 
if you're serious about alchemy and about this inner journey, uh, I think this is a good place to start. I mean, her book, and there's another book coming, I believe, too. And uh, uh, this is real knowledge. You can you can get started here, definitely, on a what will turn out to be, at least in my case, has been a great life journey. And obviously, you're you're not a long as far along in life as I am, but you've already taken more, most of the journey that it took me twice as long to take. So, um, the doctrine of the seven spheres. Why don't we talk about that for a few minutes? And then we're going to get into the elixir of life, I think, and a little bit about Chinese alchemy. But let's talk about the doctrine of the seven spheres first. Yeah, so this is a hermetic concept, the doctrine of the seven spheres. And if we look at the hermetic texts, like the Corpus Hermeticum and some of the different fragments um, that come from the first few centuries of the Common Era, um, we see discussion of these seven spheres. And in the hermetic cosmogony, the creation story, according to the Corpus Hermeticum, um, the one, the all, the source, God, the divine is existing in complete unity and creation is a sort of process of emanation coming from this unified source. And one of the things that um, emerges first in this creation process are these seven spheres. And we can visualize them as uh, nested spheres around the earth. And they correlate with the seven traditional planets. So starting at the outermost with Saturn and then moving to Jupiter, Mars, Venus, um, um, Mercury, the moon, and then also the sun. Um, and the human being, as the human is created or as the soul is coming down into embodiment, moves through these various spheres and takes on different energies of these spheres. And these sort of govern the fate of our existence. And we see this in astrology in the form of the natal chart. So we get this picture of exactly where all of these planets are at the time of our birth, the time and place. And if we're not conscious of these forces, then they're working on us in an unconscious way. And so the idea in the hermetic um, uh, theology is really to overcome these forces of fate and to transcend them and rise above them to a sphere that this transcendental sphere called the eight sphere or the Agdoad. And this is the sphere of the fixed stars, the realm of the Zodiac and uh, the realm of souls. And when we reach this eight sphere and we overcome these seven spheres, we have become clothed in our own proper power, as it's said in the Hermeticum. And um, this is really becoming fully conscious, integrating these unconscious parts of ourselves, um, coming out of a place of reactivity, finding balance between these polarized forces within us, um, and finding a place of creative liberation where we realize essentially our self-sameness with this unified creator and the unified nature of all of reality. Um, and I, as a, as an artist, I relate this to that place where we're in complete creative flow. So our energies are perfectly aligned and balanced, and we reach this state of creative flow where everything is sort of 
a blend of the conscious and the unconscious. We're not having to deliberate and think about our actions. It's flowing from this spontaneous uh, place and our personal will and divine will are aligned as well. So it's like a, a place of union in this eighth sphere. And the undone, which also yeah. happens to be chapter eight in your book. Yes, that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Accept my reasons offering pure from soul and heart, for I stretched up to thee, thou unutterable, unspeakable, whose name naught but the silence can express. This is a very rich quote that she's pulled from the Corpus Hermeticum uh, to begin the chapter on the Ogdoad. Um, this silence is so important to find that silence and to be able to place your attention in that inner silence is a, is one of the great points of transformation of all alchemy. Can you talk a little bit about that silence, if you will, if you can. I mean, it's <laughs> might not be able to. I know I'm not sure I could, uh, but uh, you may. You're, you're very articulate. Uh, your alchemy seems to be very much in the in the voice. So give us a shot. And see what you can <laughs> say about it. Well, I, I agree. I think that silence is absolutely crucial on this path to be able to sit in stillness with ourselves and to open ourselves to that level of reception um, where spirit can really communicate with us, where the divine can be present. And if we're busy, caught up in our thoughts and our mental loops and thinking about all the things we have to do and um, where we have to be and all of, all of that kind of mundane reality stuff, there isn't a whole lot of space for that voice to come through, that inner voice, which I relate to the voice of Hermes, that divine mind, that logos that comes through and inspires us. So being able to cultivate stillness as one does with meditation, I think is in any spiritual path, I think it's really crucial. And just in terms of personal self-awareness and development, um, being able to find that place of stillness and silence within us is, uh, it's very important. And yeah, it's how we um, connect with that numinous part of ourselves and allow something greater to work through us. Free Dreamlanders. Connect with this numinous part of unknowncountry.com and please subscribe because, boy, the site, as I've been saying, has tripled in usership in the past year and it was already a big site. But the number of subscriptions has remained essentially the same. And therefore, this is costing me more and more every day and I'm not getting, I'm not getting the support I need. So go ahead and go. It's $5 a month. It's not that much. Uh, and uh, sign up on unknowncountry.com. We'll be right back. We're talking to Seven Bremner. Uh, her book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, her website is 
Marie Seven Bremner, uh, uh, Marlena Seven Bremner dot com. Correct. It's yes. all three names. Okay. And that's Marlena, not Marie. You know, when I Googled you, I saw Marie in there as other people had made the same mistake. It's an easy mistake to make, folks. And that's why I'm talking about it. So it's Marlena Seven Bremner as the name. And of course, the website's available. You can link to it from unknowncountry.com and you'll find a lot of beautiful stuff there. In particular, you can go on a journey through her art there and on her Patreon page. You paint in alchemy. Your, your painting is an alchemical practice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, it's been like that really from the beginning. Because as I mentioned previously, I was introduced to alchemy through the works of Jung. And it was at that time that I was teaching myself how to oil paint. So uh, very early on in my process, I was thinking about alchemy and thinking about the unconscious and um, the painting as a way to work with these unconscious forces and see them externalized. And I think that's a really important alchemical concept is the externalization of the inner world, being able to observe it outside of ourselves. And what I've noticed happens when we do that in the creative process, um, at least for me, there's a dialogue that starts to unfold between the creation and my inner world and things that I wasn't able to understand that were working through me um, expressed creatively, then begin to speak back to me in the form of symbols and images um, that are new and exciting and um, unknown. And so it sort of triggers this uh, process within me of wanting to understand what's emerging in the, in the painting. And that just deepens my studies and process of contemplation upon these symbols. So that aspect in itself, I think, is very alchemical, this um, relationship between the inner and the outer, as I said before. And as I was learning about alchemy and learning about the four stages of alchemy and all of these different alchemical processes of transmutation and purification and refinement, I was experimenting with these in my process. And I would go on these kind of long, I call them extended meditations on certain ideas. So um, in my own life, I went through a very long um, sort of unintentional journey with the Negredo phase of alchemy, which is the beginning phase, uh, which means blackening. And um, it can be a very dark, difficult time and a time of working with the shadow and a time of going inward and like really um, having to face some difficult, uncomfortable parts of ourselves. Um, but this is a very necessary part of the work. We need to um, break open what the alchemists call the prima materia, the primal matter of creation, um, in order to find the philosopher's stone. The philosopher's stone is hidden within that undifferentiated consciousness of the primal matter. And we break that open and we embark on this journey of evolution and discovery and transformation. And for me, that takes place with the painting. And so there's so many different levels to that. I mean, with oil painting, it's really beautiful because you're working with oil and spirits 
and minerals, you know, so you've got this already very alchemical process happening. Um, but yeah, then you add that contemplative um, aspect to it and meditation upon these different alchemical concepts, and it becomes even more transformative and powerful. What about getting stuck in the negredo? I am very familiar with that because I, you know, it, it, you don't actually leave, I don't think, folks, any level of alchemy. It becomes the whole process becomes part of you. In other words, you don't graduate, you understand and it, your understanding deepens. And say a person finds in the dark side of themselves, something they really, really don't like and can't change. A desire or a or an a anger or something. It could be anything, any any of those negative emotions. And it, uh, that being stuck in the degrado where you can't really reconcile it and can't leave it. What what do you recommend that they how do you recommend that they approach finding a part of themselves that they can't stand and can't get rid of. <laughs> well, I know all too well how that feels. We and, all do. We all yeah. do. Yeah. When I was in this period of my life, it it went on for several, several years. Um, it was a true dark night of the soul. And for me, understanding the alchemical process as um, cyclical and starting to see that you know, in the alchemical world, there's this idea that there's no generation without putrefaction, that we have to have this state of decay and decomposition in order for new growth to happen. And so for me, it was about sitting in those difficult feelings and accepting them and just kind of surrendering to this feeling of hopelessness and inability to change. And I think it was in that that the transformation began just sort of saying, I don't know, and being okay with that. I don't know how to change. I think that's really a crucial step. And that's that sort of Saturnian um, inertia and just going into the darkness and embracing it and understanding that there are things greater than us, beyond us, that will come in in our hour of need if we can just sort of humble ourselves before this difficulty and say with all honesty, like, I don't know what to do, you know, and also kind of in that there's a prayer, like, please help me spirit, God, whatever you want to call this divine force working through us, our higher nature, if you will help me through this. And I think that part of us will respond, you know, but we have to kind of be willing to set our egos aside and accept that we don't know the next step and be comfortable, not be comfortable, but just, um, you know, accept, accept the discomfort. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We get to the point in the beginning and the beginning is like all of the journey. It's always part of the journey. Every level of the journey is part of the journey. It is a matter of noticing new levels as you go along and not discarding the old levels, I think. In any case, uh, being stuck in the negredo, and I am mentioning this so extensively because I've received some emails 
people who la- listened to Stash Rolo and said they were essentially they they didn't say it in those words, but that's what they were describing is okay. It's basically okay. We're all there. That's part of life. There are things that you can't change that you don't want in yourself. The important thing is to accept this without acting on it. In other words, if there's someone in your life that you just love to kill because they've done something truly awful to you, and there are such people in every life, you don't act on it. You accept the feelings, and you open yourself to the feelings, and then you open your heart, and you say, help me, help me, help me, someone. And there will be energy coming. Now, that gets me to a different, slightly different question. There is a direction here toward external forces outside of ourselves. But you're talking to people like who don't believe in the classic God. Say you don't believe in God. Say you're an atheist or an agnostic, and you actually deal with this in the book. What is your approach then if you don't think any of those outside forces have any kind of personified meaning? Well, like I was just saying a moment ago, that higher force, we can call it God, we can call it the all, we can call it the divine, the supreme, the one, the father, whatever we want to call it, it is our highest, most exalted um, divine place within us, our highest nature. And, you know, in the hermetic teachings, God is the soul and the mind of humanity. God is within us. So whether we call it God or our higher nature, it's really the same concept. It's this um, divine force, this divine presence that is within us. And all of these levels of being, the seven spheres, all of that is happening within us. And that's really a hermetic perspective that I think fits with this sort of agnostic view of the world. It's like, it's all happening within us. Um, And yeah, at the same time, we're connected to everything through that, through this, the field of the mind. Well, I think, have we taken three breaks? Do you know? I think we have. I think Two or so. three. Well, anyway, I'm so enthralled by this. I've forgotten the breaks. I don't know where we are. So I'm just going to go on straight and free dreamlanders. You're going to get to listen to this whole show because I don't want you to miss any of this. This is very valuable material because you can take this journey. This journey is available to anyone, and it's free. Uh, you don't even have to buy a book, actually. I mean, you can just go on the internet, and you'll piece it together for yourself if you want to. But if you do get her book, uh, you will look in it, and you will see some paintings. And some of these paintings are very, very powerful and provocative. And the more you understand alchemy and your own life and your own soul and the way the alchemical journey is the journey of the soul, the more impact these paintings are going to have. I want to talk about one of them called The Lord of the Utterance and Justice Pierces the Scales of the Crocodile. This is the painting of the transfiguration of Toth, the process of squaring this circle. Yes, And it is just... uh, The painting tells you everything you need to know about 
the energies in this process. You talk about the inspiration for this painting and the building in the background. Oh, and yeah. uh, for the those of you who are, I'm going to use the painting as the frontispiece of the show. So everyone, I'm you can see it on the site and you can see it on the YouTube channel as the splash page at the beginning of the uh, show because it's so talk about it a little bit. Sure. Well, the original inspiration for the painting was just a desire to portray Thoth, Hermes, Mercurius. And I went through many different sketches and I was sort of thinking I would do a kind of a, you know, traditional um, depiction of the deity. And then as time went on, um, nothing was quite feeling right in all of my sketching. So I kind of was just marinating on this and letting it sit. And we happened to have an eclipse, a um, solar eclipse while I was living in Olympia. And I was viewing it and felt just this immense amount of energy being transmitted as I was viewing the eclipse. And um, immediately afterward, I just knew I had to go to the studio and I had this big blank canvas ready to go for this painting. And I didn't know what I was going to do on it yet. And it was in this um, intensity of energy that I felt from the eclipse that I decided to begin the initial sketching directly on the canvas. Um, so it was a very spontaneous uh, emergence in that moment and on that day. Um, and I just started making broad strokes with some charcoal and, and then, you know, kind of step back and look at it and see what was emerging. And I could see the, the bill of the ibis and the form of the crocodile and the left arm of Thoth emerging. And it was all very unusual to me at the time. It didn't make a whole lot of sense how this composition was going to work, but you know, there were these things emerging. So I was trusting that. And as time went on, it became clear to me how this all fit together. And so the composition developed slowly over time. And um, I was really feeling viscerally this sort of transformation going on within me uh, relating to my inner world. And so you see this sort of opening within the um, abdomen of Thoth and these different minerals kind of in a state of transformation and a serpent emerging and rising up. So this was all very, like a very felt experience for me. I had a lot of stuff going on physically at the time that related to what emerged in the painting. And um, this idea of Thoth representing a unification of the polarities. Um, we think of Mercurius as this sort of androgynous um, hermaphroditic deity uniting the male and the female in one body. And so you see that represented there in the body of Thoth. Um, another thing about this painting is I wanted to represent my hometown of Olympia, where I was living at the time. And so you see the lake, and that's Capital Lake in Olympia, where I spent immense amounts of time walking around. And it's a circle path that goes around the lake. So I would just walk this circle almost every day and observe the water and the reflections on the water and the time of year when the algae takes over and think about these alchemical processes playing out in this sort of um, vessel of this lake and watching the reflection of the sky and the water and just hours of contemplation on these ideas. 
And so that's incorporated into the painting as well, because I feel like so much of the, um, the transmissions of Hermes, of Mercurius and Thoth were coming through during that time and in that way through these um, observations of nature. Um, and another element in the painting, as you mentioned, is the building in the background. And that's the Capitol building in Olympia. And it sits up on a hill above the lake. And I also spent a lot of time walking around the Capitol grounds, which it's a very haunted area, not a lot of people out on the ground. So you could feel very alone there and almost like you're walking around in another time period. And because of the, you know, the architecture resembling the ancient Greek architecture, I would sort of go into these, um, you know, meditative fantasies of walking around some ancient temple sites. And um, anyway, that was incorporated into the painting, partly for that reason. And um, partly, and, you know, I kind of realized this after the fact, but the represent representation of um, the justice system, and both relating to this idea of justice, and um, the eighth arcanum and the tarot. Um, and you see Thoth is holding the symbol of life, the Ankh, the Egyptian Ankh in his left hand. And this is sort of almost like coming down like a hammer over this judicial building. And so kind of this statement that the divine law is superior to this human idea of law and justice. That's exactly the impression I had. And by the way, the union of male and female in the painting is brilliant. It's very subtle. Uh, folks, it, 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 there are uh, uh, surrounding the ibis head of Thoth is a um, almost a, 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 a halo of feathers that changes into the crocodile at the base of the painting. The reason uh, Thoth is very important to me because I think that this this deity, uh, Thoth Hermes, is essentially is us, it is the personification of inner search. It is the, this is search. And anyone who is going on a journey of inner search, and this is the reason I brought up the, the being stuck in the degrado at the beginning of this part of the conversation, is you're going to have to figure out how to square the circle. And you, one of the ways you do that is by accepting yourself. And this combination of these beautiful, suggestive images, the peaceful lake, the feathers, the, the, the ankh with the crocodile, and it's, it, it shows this whole process in a very nonverbal way, and it's it's very, a very active painting. They all are, but this one is is this is the painting to me that struck me as being the painting of search in your work, uh, the power of search. I mean, so um, it's a uh, and all of the paintings, uh, the the anima emerging from the desert chalice as the spirit ascends from the body is also this remarkable stuff. So uh, do folks, if uh, go on your, her site and 
look at the paintings and on her Patreon page. And if I hope a lot of you get the book, uh, it's a it's a big hardcover, beautifully produced book, as they always do at uh, who's Inner your, Traditions. Uh, Inner Traditions, yeah, yeah. sorry. Talk, talk about Rain Fog. Anyway, it's $40 from Inner Traditions. And if you have an interest in this, you can learn intellectually about your journey uh, by reading, and then you can activate the journey using the paintings as tools. Uh, I want to talk about another painting, uh, the, uh, the one, the last one in the group, uh, uh, the elixir of immortality flows from the fountain at the foot of the oak. I want you to explain this painting to me because I couldn't understand it, but <laughs> I know it has great meaning for you. I can tell by the passion in in the painting and the the ferociousness of the lion and the the dynamic of the unicorn and the blazing sky it's an amazing piece of work tell us a little bit about it um well thank you first of all um this was perhaps one of my most ambitious works because it's the largest painting i've ever done and it took me 2 years to complete and i began it while I was living in Olympia and finished it here in New Mexico. So um, it represented a huge change and transformation for me. Um, but it was similar to the Thoth painting in that I had this blank canvas, huge canvas that a friend of mine had given me years ago that had just been sitting around and waiting to be painted. And um, I wanted it to be something really special, you know, so I was saving it. And I thought, that I was going to just paint um, the green lion devouring the sun. I love that alchemical image. And I wanted to do my own representation of it. Um, however, that's not what um, was in store for me because the same thing happened where uh, something, I think it was Jupiter going direct back in like 2018 or 2019. I can't remember exactly when. Um, I felt this intense surge of energy and just in knowing within me that it was time to start the painting. And so I just went at it with some charcoal once again and let my arm, you know, flow in the way that it wanted to and then step back and see what was emerging. And it was very similar kind of eerie feeling when I saw the face of the unicorn and the face of the lion and this sort of um, symbol of Jupiter within the painting, which um, if you look closely, the fence in the foreground connecting with the horn of the unicorn creates the sigil of Jupiter. So that was one of the first things that came out as I was beginning the painting was that sigil and the lion and the unicorn faces. And again, I just looked at it and I was like, how is this going to be a painting? Like, this doesn't make any sense how this is laid out. And um, I had to just step into the unknown and let it develop in its own time. And, um, you know, I, I think the relationship between the lion and the unicorn is really about these opposites within ourselves, the solar and the lunar opposites, the masculine and the feminine, the active and the passive um, that are so vital to everything going on within us and everything that we do. And 
so often as we're going through this alchemical work, these forces are battling within us. And our work is to find that place of reconciliation. So this painting was really about that reconciliation for me. And um, you can see there, there's a little bit of blood dripping from the unicorn's horn and a wound in the arm of the lion. And um, this idea that they had been battling, but they had finally come to peace. They'd come to reconciliation and a little bit of blood was shed. And, you know, also the heart of the unicorn embodied by this unfolding red rose um, representing that sort of opening that happens um, through this reconciliation of these opposing principles. And the lion, um, which is sort of a segment figure, sort of um, lion goddess, female divinity with a male lion's head. Um, she's spitting out this acorn because she's at the same time, she's the oak tree. And she's spitting out this acorn of wisdom, this little kernel of wisdom that has come through this whole process is being transmitted. And the serpent of life, which is weaving up the, um, the fence in front of her is ready to receive that wisdom and serpent representing that transformation that's occurring. So those are some of the ideas going on in that painting. Um, there's a lot more. And it was also, I just want to add, um, and this happens often for me, um, it's not just about transformation, but it's also a magical process um, and often relating to different manifestations and things that I'm working towards. So when I started this painting, I knew that I wanted to move to the desert. I didn't really know how to make that happen. And the first place that I started was to begin incorporating desert imagery into the painting. And so you see that in the background of the painting. Yes. And, um, so then it was very uh, magical and powerful to me to bring that painting with me to the desert and to complete it here and to see that full process having taken place. Why the desert? Well, I love the Northwest. It's a really beautiful, magical, special place. And I spent 12 and a half years there um, walking through the damp forest and, you know, absorbing all of that rich green beauty. But at a certain point, I felt saturated. And in every way, my life just felt saturated. I, um, I'd become pretty well known in Olympia. It's a small town. So I had a lot of friends and knew a lot of people and in Seattle as well. And it just felt a little bit overwhelming and um, contradictive to the life that I was trying to cultivate, you know, lots of solitude and time for reflection. And it's hard to do that when there's um, continual distraction and, um, you know, lovely people. I love all of the people that I know in Olympia and I miss them terribly, but, you know, at the same time, it was like difficult to, to do the work that I was doing, especially with the books, because um, the books were really starting to take form. And I knew that I needed a different place in order to bring them to completion. And I needed a lot of space and a lot of time alone to do that. So that was a big motivator for moving out here. And it certainly is um, a place of solitude where I live and very eternal feeling, you know, I live at the edge of the desert. So beyond this property, it's just wild desert land and it's beautiful and it's very 
Um, I think for a lot of people, it's a challenging environment to live in. It's very isolated, uh, but I find a lot of peace in that. You know, sometimes before I start an interview, I I ask a question about the person I'm going to interview. It's an open question. I don't ask a specific question. I just ask to for something. And it's interesting that the answer in this case, sometimes there is no answer, but every once in a while, there's a very clear answer. And in this case, it is, she lives under a wandering star. And uh, I want to know if that resonates with you at all. That's beautiful. Um, and it certainly does. <laughs> yeah, I thought it might. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I live under many wandering stars. <laughs> the yeah. stars are very present here um, without all the you know, I'm kind of far away from any major cities. So um, I really love that about being out here, being able to connect with the the stellar realm. And also, yeah, just the idea of wandering is very close to my heart. Like I, I love to have a rooted sense of place so I can do my painting. It's hard to do that when you're on the road and traveling. Right. Some, some artists can do it. I'm not really like that, but um I love to wander and I love to get lost in nature and to take very long walks and um, get absorbed in observation and reflection. So. Well, be careful wandering in the desert. It, 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 it doesn't have a forgiveness button. <laughs> if you get lost, you're, you're done. Um, the unity between humanity and God, here we are under this wandering star, mankind all of us wandering in the desert together and alone at the same time. What is this unity between humanity and God? This is a doctrine, as you say, that is core to hermetic writings and teaching. Uh, the journey toward unity. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, yeah. It is. Um it's a core teaching if we look at these hermetic texts and it's this idea of gnosis, you know, the true self-knowledge of what we actually are and what our role is as a human being and realizing through these processes of initiation and transformation of death and rebirth, um, realizing our true eternal essence um, beyond all the fluctuations and changes of this life and beyond death at our core we are eternal because we're part of this one unified eternal source and that's the idea of gnosis is coming to this realization um, within and fully understanding that and what does that mean if we realize our self-sameness with the creator um, on the one hand, there's a danger there. There's a, a danger of um, megalomania and thinking that we are God, you know, and we're controlling everything. And I've seen people go down that path and I've walked the fine line of that, that myself. Um, so it's important to remember that it's a paradox. We are God, and yet we are also just this one unique uh, window of that divine essence. 
you know, so we're both, we're mortal and we're immortal. And this is the human condition um, is to reconcile that, to do what we can here in our mortal form, um, but to do, retain that awareness once we've reached it, you know, maintain that awareness of our divine eternal nature. And that instills within us this sort of, um, I don't want to say fearlessness because, you know, I don't think it's complete fearlessness, but just a trust in these processes of, of life and death and an understanding that they are one and the same thing. As above, oh, as above some, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to add to that, um, that in realizing that self sameness with the creator, it really gives us, um, an immense amount of power, understanding that through the imagination, just like all of creation was brought forth through the imagination of God, then we are creating through our own imaginations all the time as well. And the more focus and clarity we can bring to that through these processes of purification and refinement that alchemy teaches us, um, the better able we are to to create in this world. As above, so below. Where are we? <laughs> you didn't expect questions like this, I know. <laughs> no, this is great. This is really great. It's so fun to talk to someone who understands these things. Yeah, yeah it's fun because you do too, and I'm having a blast. <laughs> So as above, so below. I mean, I think it's presented as though we're below, right? We're right. In earthly realm below and the heavens is above. But it's also the um, the other side of that, which is as below, so, or I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that which is above is like that which is below. That which and, is below is like that which is above. So yes. it's both heaven is within us. So we think of this idea of um, ascending through the spheres, but we're also going deeper within ourselves. So it's a, you know, it goes both ways. You know, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you folks, she just explained what that meant. So if you stop the show, roll back about a minute and listen to it again, you'll listen to it in a whole new way. It was a big statement. It was very accurately put, very accurately. Um, that which is above is from that which is below, and that which is below is from that which is beloved, above, working the miracles of one, says Hermes. Do you remember what that quote is from? Uh, you may not. I mean, it's a... Yeah. It, Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's from the Emerald Tablet. From so, the Emerald Tablet. Okay. Yes. Yes. So we have now a a journey that we have been on, and we, I, I I would like to go to a different kind of place um, because. Uh, uh, one of the things that has happened in the sort of ordinary world is a big folklore has built been built up uh, around 
in particular, the wisdom of the Sumerians. And Anki is now thought of as a sort of a guy. Can you explain what Anki is and how that great wisdom is to be taken now? Not as a not as something about uh, these entities coming and having a uh, a leader named Anki and so forth. Mm. So Anki, if we break that down, it's An, which is heaven, and Ki, which is earth. So essentially, Anki is heaven, earth, and I think what's really beautiful about that is. And I was thinking about this um, just recently is this idea that heaven and earth are the same place. It's the same thing. And it's really just through our own sort of dualistic lens of viewing the world. This, I mean, we are in a world of duality. So these things get separated. And that's what we see in that creation story, right? Is um, the air god Enlil comes and divides heaven and earth. And then creation takes place in humanity and all all of that and so forth. Um, but originally they're one and it's really just through our perception that we see them as two things, but um, realizing that unity is, is what we do on this path. And I think that's really beautifully stated there in the Sumerian mythology. As it, yeah. And it relates very much to as above, so below, because what as above so below is saying is that that the separation is a sort of illusion um now enlil do you know uh i i don't know you don't go into it too deeply here but do you know the story of enlil and the great above and the great below and why the separation occurred um not offhand sorry i'm yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we won't we won't go there for folks, but okay. it's worth studying the the reasons that Enlil uh separated or created the illusion of separation. It was in the the inner reason is that it's in order to give us a chance to take a journey that we would not be able to take if we were in effect living as above so below. Uh, we would be angels, and we would have no conflicts. We wouldn't be in conflict. So he Enlil gave us this, this chance of conflict. And, you know, I'm in the Gurdjieff work, and I, I don't talk about it very much, but I will say this, that they, Gurdjieff talks about this in the context of something called the organ kunda buffer, uh, which was removed from us. Or, 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 uh, and it, it, the the Kundalini buffer, uh, or, and it separated us from the earth. the The removal of the organ separated us from the earth, and we could no longer have the attachment to the earth that we need in order to be fully human. But we can restore it through this. He has his own work. Alchemy is a is a deeper, older work of restoration. Um, now let's let's talk about the relationship between all of this and desire, 
and and cupescence, cupid, the 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 sexuality of this journey, the energy that that I brought up Kundalini in in the context of Kundalini energy and the body. Because yes. I suspect you know a lot about that because you have been a you are into polarity work. Yes, yes, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book throughout the chapters. Um, yes. So the seven spheres that we've been talking about, we can relate to the seven chakras of the human esoteric anatomy, and these are energy centers that um, are found up and down the spinal column. So beginning at our root chakra at the perineum and all the way up to the crown at the top of our head. And this idea of kundalini, um, this energy, this serpentine energy, um, creative sexual energy and life force that sleeps curled up in our sacrum. And through the spiritual process, we awaken this energy and it ascends up this spinal column of energy to the crown. And this is... um, a form of enlightenment and self-realization and fully awakening and activating all of these energetic centers within us. And we also think about the caduceus or the staff of Hermes. And that is a, a central staff entwined by two serpents. And at the top of it, there's um, sort of an orb and or knob, and then two wings extending off of that. And this represents that central channel of energy called Sushumna in the Vedic tradition. And the two serpents are the positive and negative forces or the active and passive male and female. And as these um, entwine and spiral around this central staff, the places where the serpents cross over is where these chakras are located and created. So Um, Each of these chakras has these energetic polarities active within them, present within them, the positive, the neutral, and the negative. And we can relate this back to the hermetic teachings, which talk about de-energizing the spheres. So if our chakras, our energy centers, which relate to all different aspects of life, are in these sort of charged places, of reactivity, sort of a pendulum going one way or the other, where we're being pulled by desire in one direction or repulsion in another direction, um, attraction and repulsion, essentially, then we're not able to unify our energies to where that um, kundalini can really rise up to its full potential because we're caught up in these energetic dynamics that are playing out in our lives. So yeah, that's a little bit of how we can relate these hermetic concepts to the energy body and um, understanding these chakras and how they correspond to different things going on in our life. Like the root chakra having to do with Saturn um, represents that beginning of the work as well and relates to that alchemical negredo. The root chakra is all about our physicality, our, our place on the earth, um, our mortality, and um, sense of safety and stability and security and our base fears of existence essentially all are housed within this lower chakra. And as we kind of work those issues out and we become more comfortable as our place with our place as humans and um, 
then we can work up through the chakras up to the crown. And if we think of Saturn and the root chakra associated with the metal lead, we can also see a correspondence with the alchemical process of transmuting lead into gold because the sun rests at our crown chakra. It's our highest, most exalted chakra and our connection with the divine. And the sun correlates with the metal gold. So in working with the chakras, we also see this process of transmuting that base metal lead from the root chakra and ascending to the crown in its most exalted form of gold. And gold, of course, is the unchanging element. It is the eternal element. Yes. And it is rejoining eternity, uh, bringing with you new energy gained in life. The I want to talk now, uh, I'll, I'm, and folks, I'm going to take you back to something you probably have don't remember. Years ago, uh, Betty Andreasen Luca, who's now passed away, had one of the most powerful experience, UFO, close encounter experiences, and it was an alchemical experience in its core essence of the first order. Uh, when she observed in a close encounter situation a phoenix rising from from a fire and was overwhelmed by the power and the intensity of the heat of this fire mars the flames of transformation can you tell us a little bit about the flames of transformation yes yes well, as you know, in alchemy, fire is quintessential. It's um, absolutely necessary to complete the great work. And I, I think of fire as our intention and our attention as we go through these processes. So the intensity of both of those things, intention and attention, really um, determines how quickly or how well we are able to facilitate these transmutations going on within us and without. So yes, fire is absolutely essential. And with Mars, we have this kind of um, picture of the warrior and this passionate, almost rageful um, deity who, if that fire is not controlled, it can cause a lot of destruction, you know? So this idea of being able to um, direct the intensity of our fire and to um, channel it in the proper ways to facilitate transmutation is very important, I think. And Mars would be the the planet to work with in that regard if we're um, wanting to understand the fire element. When you say work with, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things when we're going on this path of understanding and working with the planets and the seven spheres is the idea of these planets are archetypal energies and they're very complex. It's like when you meet a person, um, you don't just say, okay, that's John. And John is this, like you can define John just by his name. Like you have to get to know the person, right? So the planets are the same way and these archetypes and in order to really understand how they're manifesting in our lives, we have to treat them as 
though they were a person that we want to get to know. And so there's this sort of devotional aspect that comes in. And so when I say work with Mars, that's what I'm referring to is this sort of um, devotional desire to understand and to integrate um, the essence of a planet and to to understand our personal relationship to these archetypal energies. So if we want to focus on a specific planet, um, there's so many different things we can do. I think um, in general, it's good to acknowledge the planets in this work and to have a sort of planetary practice, which you can do every day in the hour of the planet, you know, reciting invocations to the gods and um, meditating with them, working with correspondence and incenses and stones and things like that to kind of, you know, begin to integrate and understand them. But um, at a deeper level, I think we can work with specific archetypes for extended periods of time. And in as many ways as we can, you know, um, thinking about them in terms of our relationships, thinking about them in terms of our spiritual practice, um, working with them as ideas in our creative practice. So there's a lot of different ways that we can engage with the planets and work with them. And I think that in doing that, we it, it is an internal engagement and in a sense that we're looking into the outside world in order to bring the inside world into an energetic state that relates uh, as above so below mm-hmm. so in your daily practice do you have a daily practice in other words is there something you would when you wake up in the morning is there something you would generally do? Uh, Well, my practice varies quite a bit. Um, And that's because I just, I have so many different things going on in my life at this point, um, between the books and the painting and poetry. And um, so I have a lot of different things that I'm trying to do. And so I kind of try to stay in a state of flow with all of it and what feels right every day. Um, and that I would say is my daily practice is just, um, doing what I can to facilitate flow state within myself. Um, but in general, if I'm in the practice of working with the planets every day, which I go in and out of, I prefer to work with them in the first hour of the day. I feel like that's the most optimal time to work with them. So, um, I do go through phases where I'm doing that on a daily basis, um, and then at other times I wake up in the morning and I want to study for a couple hours. And that's really one of my favorite ways to engage with this work in a devotional way is to study and to continue learning and to go deeper with everything. So I like to do that in the morning. And um, as a creator, my creative energy tends to increase throughout the day. So I'm more active in that respect in the evening. So and midday is kind of just taking care of all the emails and correspondence and <laughs> minutia. Yeah. 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 All right. What about a meditation practice or a prayer practice? Do you have either of those? I do. Yeah. Um, usually when I'm working with the planets and I like to do this in the morning as well, I'll meditate after I do all of my invocations and prayer work and I'll just sit with that energy. Um, other times I like to meditate. Um, in a more 
Buddhist fashion of just like allowing the mind to settle and observing and breathing, you know, self-observation. Um, I also like to do a lot of active meditations, visualizations, uh, working with energy and moving energy in different ways with the breath and intention. Um, and then I do have a gratitude practice and I usually incorporate that with my yoga practice. So at the end of a, a yoga session, I will do my gratitude practice usually. Well, what a story. What a story. A life of a of a a real alchemist working in the spirit. You don't find this very often. And um, however you came to it, we'll never know. But I have a feeling that you've been in alchemy for many lifetimes because you don't write a book like this uh, in the first life you've ever lived in alchemy. This is too accomplished. You know, you're also a poet, and I wanted to ask you to read a poem. Uh, and I don't think you have one ready because I didn't, I didn't ask this before. But if there is one at hand uh, that you would like to bring to us now, it would be good. But if not, uh, that's fine. I, I, and I apologize for not having asked this at the beginning of the show. Well, if, yeah, if you don't mind waiting just a moment, I'm sure I could pull one up here. Yeah, uh, please do. Okay. We'll, um, we'll, we'll wait. And uh, I'm, uh, her website is, uh, is marlena7bremner.com. The book is Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. The Emerald Tablet, the Corpus Hermeticum, and the Hermeticum and the Journey Through the Seven Spheres, a real book about the alchemical journey and filled with paintings that are genuine modern alchemical paintings uh, that are very provocative and very powerful. So now you've got your poem. <laughs> I'm almost there. I'm getting close to having a poem to read. Okay, well, this is um, an alchemical one that I wrote back in Olympia, and it's called Dissolution. Must not we also fall as the sun-choked leaf and golden bough, returning to release our being into earth? The rains come and we dissolve, reborn unrecognizable, feeding the future of ourselves. Another season of light, sap-filled branches drawing up the waters, the roots and their muted conversations. The birds call us out with their song. Outstretched veins, the lace of memories and gleam of the infinite, trembling in change, seeming so far from the root, so low to the star. Considering such, that all our life we grow as a fruit, to nurture what more may become, to give ourselves up for the next, we surrender. Perfect ending. Because we live in a world that is very much not surrendered and is in trouble for that reason. 
we surrender though those of us on a real spiritual journey and you know people say well why should i be on a spiritual journey i need a new car yes you probably do need a new car uh, but at the same time in the end and there is one in every life your spiritual journey will be what mattered seven thank you for giving us all of this richness this, on this streamland it's an extraordinary experience thank you well thank you so much for having me on the show whitley it's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you well good we will speak again i look forward to it <laughs> you've been listening to dreamland be sure to tune in again next week dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.